Father, forever your word is settled in heaven. And we're so thankful that we hold the eternal word of God in our hands. And through your Holy Spirit, we're able to understand the teaching that is there and to apply it to our own hearts and lives for strength and for wisdom, for direction, for cleansing, for all of those things that are essential for our well-being here in this life and eternally. We're thankful, Lord, for your blessing upon us over these past many months and years and for your help and direction as we have studied the book of beginnings. And Lord, now as we complete uh, this study today, we pray that you'll guide our thoughts, that you will empower us through your word. And we ask, Lord, that as the word of God is being proclaimed in the, in the morning service and then throughout our Sunday school today, that you will bless in every class, that you will strengthen and encourage and to bring your perfect will done. Even as uh, Jesus exhorted us to pray that your will might be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis 50, verse 22. Genesis 50:22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph has lived to the age of 110. To us, that seems like a ripe old age. Most of us probably don't hope to live that old. In fact, most of us probably seriously hope the Lord would return <laughs> before we get to be 110, were we to be able to live that long. Although that seems like a long time to us, we have to put it in light of his predecessors. His, his life was much shorter than that of his father. His father died at 147. Uh, his grandfather died at 180, Isaac. And Abraham died at 175, and his father, Terah, died at 205. So as you look at that, you can see even now the, the further rapid declension in, in the age of human beings. And, and even the average was not as high as these individuals, because I think in many ways they were especially blessed of God and, and lived probably longer than, than the average in other societies. In fact, in the archaeological digs that have been done and in the uh, mummies that have been uh, studied, indication is that most of these people died at, relatively, uh, at a relatively young age, 40, 50 maybe. And so it's a further portrayal of what has happened since the Great Flood, uh, where we noted that Noah lived to be 950, but his, none of his sons lived to be nearly that long, uh, that old. And, and then the children after that, the, the, the die-off rate 
uh, came much, much sooner. The rate Im increased in terms of the longevity of uh, the human race. To the Egyptians, uh, this would have seemed to be an ideal lifespan. One of the reasons Jacob was held in such awe was his great longevity. And Pharaoh just stood in awe looking at this man before him, who at that time, when, when uh, Jacob first stood before Pharaoh, he was 130. And Pharaoh was just awestruck. Uh, there's no record of any Pharaoh ever having lived even close to 110 uh, years. And so it was an amazing thing to, to him. God gave to Joseph the opportunity to see his great-grandchildren. And not only to see his great-grandchildren, but even to, as the scripture says, hold them upon his knee and certainly to give to them paternal love and blessing. Joseph was a man who reached out to touch people's lives throughout his life. And here in the final moments of his life, in verse 24, we read that Joseph spoke to his brothers to extract from them a promise. And as he would do so, he would insert promises to them. The term brothers here is plural. Now remember, only Benjamin is younger than Joseph, amongst, at least as best as we can tell, uh, amongst the 12 brothers. And so all of his, the 10 other brothers were older than Joseph. But the implication here is that others are alive besides Benjamin because the term is plural. In fact, we have no record of the death of any of Joseph's brothers. The only record recorded death of one of the sons of Jacob is that of Joseph. That doesn't mean the others, of course, didn't die. It just means that the scripture did not record their deaths. And probably this was the, the, this was the result of the fact that it was Joseph who was carrying the patriarchal mantle. He was the one who had inherited the, the direct line of, of God's blessing upon the, the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the other brothers were not ancillary to the whole thing, but they were not carriers of that particular mantle of leadership. There's no mention anywhere in Scripture. You can look through the, these verses we just read. You can go on and look in the rest of the Pentateuch. You'll not find a place where it said, and then when Joseph died, the leadership of the clan devolved upon ta-da-ta-da. It doesn't say. They're, they're, it's just as if it comes to an end here. In fact, what we're looking at is the end of the patriarchal age, of this, this era of several hundred years of the patriarchs of Israel. We are now looking at the end of that age, an era that lasted about 300 years. From the time that God called Abraham from Haran, when Abraham was 75, until the death of Joseph at 110, looking at a period of about 300 years from about the 21st century B.C. to about the 18th century B.C. Now, if you read in the book of Acts uh, the sermon that Stephen uh, made at the point of his departure from this life, he does refer to the sons of Jacob as the 12 <coughs> patriarchs. Patriarchs probably in the sense that they were the progenitors of the 12 tribes. 
But even if we were to say, okay, let's, let's include all of them as part of the patriarchal age, we're not adding much to it because certainly within a decade or at the most two decades after the death of Joseph, certainly all the rest of them were probably dead. Uh, some of them were certainly already dead before Joseph died. Scripture just simply is silent on that particular issue. Joseph knew that his death would frighten his brothers, his nephews, and even probably his own sons. He had been their umbrella. While they were living in the land of uh, Egypt, Joseph was prime minister of the land. And, and so they sort of had, if you will, a, a kind of a carte blanche here in many ways. But now the umbrella would be gone. He was going to pass from this life into the next. And no longer would Joseph be prime minister. And no longer would he be able to intercede for them in any particular situation. But Joseph reminded them that that wasn't the critical issue. Because it was God who had made them promises. And it would be God who would therefore fulfill those promises. First of all, God said, I will take care of you. Joseph reminded them that this was God's promise. In fact, it's been God who's been taking care of you all along. I may have been the instrument, Joseph would say. I may been, have been the channel, but it's God who has been taking care of you. I have simply been the agent of God's blessing. Now, within this promise are, I think, two very important truths that not only applied to the, the sons of Israel, but they apply equally to us today. And the first of those is that God takes care of his own. I think most of us have come to understand that, and probably in very intimate ways. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have this picture of God as the good shepherd who takes care of his flock. And we are the people of that flock of God. And we have seen through the life of Joseph, because it's been such a wonderful illustration of these truths, that God never allows anything evil to happen to his people unless he has a greater purpose in allowing it to happen. If it is for the good of his people, for the fulfillment of his plan, and for the good of the individual through whom, or who goes through this difficult time, God may allow it, but not otherwise. We sometimes say, oh God, why am I going through this? Without realizing, probably, how many things God has kept us from. How many calamities, and how many crises, and how many disasters. <clears throat> Pardon me. We, we just don't know how many things God has kept us from. We, we had a, a friend once who, not once, I mean, <laughs> she's still our friend, but it's been a while since we've seen her, that uh, said that she was in a, a situation where her car spun out, and she said she passed another car so closely that you couldn't put your hand between the two cars, and yet they didn't touch. You know, those kinds of things happen, and often things happen we don't even know what could have happened. And so for us to say, oh God, why is this happening to me? We should say, oh God, I thank you that not more things than this have happened, I suppose, maybe. 
Jesus said to his disciples, and hence to us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'd like to read a couple of passages from 1 Peter, one from the 4th chapter and the other from the 5th chapter, which I think really speak to us concerning life when it's a little bit on the rugged side. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Anytime we think that suffering cannot be the will of God, and there are those who preach that. You've all heard of the health and wealth gospel where if you're a true believer, there's no reason for you to suffer, you know, financially or physically or in any other area. But, you know, it says right here that let those who suffer according to the will of God. So God wills that we suffer often. And it's only really through suffering that we begin to sense and understand a little of the real meaning of the, of the cross of Christ. Most of you probably are aware of, and we've had a little bit of emphasis at the college, that this is the 50th anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Not today, but, but just recently. And it's very interesting, there's an article in Christianity Today uh, about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what is interesting is, we could say, why did this man of God, who was such a blessing to others in the prison camp where he was at Flossenburg, why did he die only one week from salvation in the human sense? You know, he, he was hung about a week from the time American troops captured the camp. And God could have certainly held him off, you know, for a week and preserved this man's life. But if you've read anything written by Bonhoeffer, he talks much about the suffering of Christ and of the cost of discipleship. And often we, we think of discipleship in, in the sense of uh, no big cost. You know, if you follow along with Christ, life is going to be... Uh, you know, if you're in the center of God's will, life should be a bed of roses. <laughs> Sometimes we forget about roses. <laughs> roses have a lot of thorns on them. And life often is that way. 
And uh, Bonhoeffer emphasized the fact that we in our bodies and, and in our emotions and our minds often pay a very high price for true discipleship. And that's why some people shy away from true discipleship. They want to be called Christians, but they don't want to do what is required of a Christian, and that is to live the life of Christ. And then we're in a really sad situation because you don't feel good about yourself because you're neither hot nor cold. And when God spoke of the church of Laodicea in this hot and cold situation, it was very clear what he thought about it. Then further down in the fifth chapter of 1 Peter, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think sometimes we forget that God's plan for us is that we grow in grace. He doesn't want us just to be transformed into his kingdom and then sit there, <laughs> you know, like a bulb in the ground doing nothing. He wants us to blossom forth. And, and the only way to do that is if we are perfected and confirmed and strengthened and established. And the only way those things happen is after we have suffered for a little while. Secondly, a second truth within this promise of God's care is that God usually cares for his children through his children. God wants us to minister to one another in any area of need in which we are able to minister to another person. God has promised to supply all of our needs. He says in Philippians, I will supply all of your needs according to my... Their, my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But how does he do that? He can do it miraculously. And, and all of us know something of the story of Elijah, where at one point he was supplied with his needs by the ravens. Another time, angels came and ministered to, to him. And then we remember the story of the children of Israel as they were wandering around out in the wilderness and God dropped manna out of heaven to feed them for nearly 40 years. But that is not the normal experience. Those are abnormal situations, unusual, miraculous situations. God does not usually meet our needs by dropping things out of heaven, even though sometimes we might like him to. Instead, he uses his own people. He uses his church. He gives to you and to me, usually, the strength and the ability to work and to earn a living that we might provide for our family and provide for the needs of God's people. But when there is someone 
who is a believer and, was it as, and is within the framework of God's church so that people know about the particular need, uh, is unable to meet their own needs, then it's up to God's church, God's people, to meet the needs of that individual. But in any case, it's really God's supply in the long run. Because God meets the needs through us, we become simply God's channel of blessing. There's so many important themes in Scripture that I hope we have touched on through the book of uh, Genesis. And I think one of those themes is that we are God's channel of blessing. God works through individuals to bless other individuals. He doesn't have to do it that way. God didn't have to create angels. He chose to create angels. And the scripture in Hebrews tells us that they are ministering spirits. And that's how he reaches out to us by choice. And, and we reach out to one another because we're God's channel of blessing, because that's the way he's chosen to work. That's how he wants to bless. And so it's important for us that we be willing channels, that we do, as it says there in 1 Peter, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and to cast our cares, our anxieties upon him. If we suffer for a little while, our suffering is partially alleviated when we cast those cares upon Him. But if we insist on carrying them all ourselves, then we create a more difficult situation for ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? In order that he may have something to share with him who has need. I think sometimes within our affluent American society, we forget some of these truths. We live in a, in a country where we have unemployment insurance, and where we have old age insurance, and where we have disability insurance, and, and, and where we have you know, all kinds of government help, welfare. And the result of that is the church sometimes forgets its role and forgets its obligation to minister to God's people within the framework of the church. In Galatians 6, we read, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Especially to those of the household of faith. We have such a, a long tradition of independence in America. And I don't mean the Declaration of Independence, but the, even before the United States was born as a nation, there were the independent people who went out to the frontier and carved their home and their land out of the wilderness, literally, and fought off the Indians and whatever else, and, and there, there was this independent spirit, I can do it myself. Well, you know, there's a degree to which that's okay. But we're not here to do it ourselves. Because scripture tells us that we can do all things only through Christ, who strengthens us. The things that are really important. And, and that spirit of independence tends to cause us often to think, I can do it, you can do it. And if you don't do it, that's just your problem. 
don't look to me for help. And that's wrong because God gives us the strength to do what we have to do, to carry out our jobs, whatever it might be, not only to minister to our own needs and those of our family, but to have that to help others too who are in need. And I, can't, I suppose the most important thing is to have the mind which was in Christ, and that's where we really care about others in their needs. I think it has to start with that. There are many examples, of course, in the New Testament of the early church ministering to the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs of its own members as well as those of another church. And, and you know, we even have the record of Paul saying, even in your need, you sent to me. Then uh, Joseph in his passage in Genesis 50 points out a second promise. God will bring you out of Egypt. God will bring you out of Egypt. He reminded his brothers that you will not just be absorbed in Egypt. You will not just melt into this great melting pot of Egyptian culture and uh, ethnic background. Nor will the Egyptians destroy you as an identifiable people of God. Neither of those things will occur. In his time, God is going to fulfill his promise. And his promise was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also to Joseph, that I will bring you into the promised land, the land of Canaan. God had made that promise extremely specific. And when he had, when he had reinforced it in Jacob's mind, that was just before Jacob went to Egypt. I'd like to just go back to that passage in the 46th chapter of Genesis for a moment to renew our acquaintance with what God said to Jacob there. Jacob was poised on the, uh, on the brink of going off into Egypt, and he wasn't too sure he wanted to do that. But he did because God urged him to. Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God, to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. And I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also, also bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. And as, we, as I emphasize that point, it was quite clear that God was not going to bring Jacob personally back up out of Egypt, except his bones would be, and he'd be buried in, in the cave of Machpelah. But the, 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 the clear teaching here is, I will bring your family, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt in my time, after I've made of you a great nation. And so God had promised. And Joseph said, don't forget God's promise. It was given to Abraham. And God specifically gave it again to Isaac. And God specifically gave it again to Jacob. He didn't just depend upon Abraham telling Isaac and Isaac telling Jacob, but God himself told them, individually, personally. And then Jacob transmits this truth on to his brothers, his nephews, and his sons. In light of this, he then extracts from them a promise. They were to take his bones back 
when God calls you out of here and you go back to Canaan, take my bones with you and bury me in the land of promise. Why? <laughs> Do you or I care what happens to our bones after we're gone? We probably wouldn't care for them to be on display hanging up in some <laughs> laboratory someplace, that's true. But most of us probably aren't real too concerned about what happens after we're dead. And Joseph wasn't concerned for himself. But, but he knew that just as Jacob's bones were transported back up there for the purpose of the Israelites realizing that Israel, Jacob, is in the land of Canaan. His grave is in the land of Canaan. And there is a tendency for people to think wherever the grave is that there's something special about that place and about that country. And they didn't want Egypt to be a land to which any of them had any affinity. Because as you read through Scripture, the Old Testament, often Egypt will now be equated with the world in the concept of world versus the kingdom of God. And so J Joseph's concern was simply that his bones be in the land of promise and that that would therefore be a focal point of anybody's thought or concern, not that they would make pilgrimages to his grave or anything, but that was better than having his bones left in Egypt. Do we even know where a lot of people's bones are? Do we know where Ab Adam and Eve are buried? You know? Where's Moses? Well, the scripture tells us that God buried Moses someplace. There's uh, human theories about where Moses is, as far as his bones are concerned. When were they to take his body or his bones back? We said whenever God visited them. And God will visit you. That's a promise. God will visit you. And Joseph was, in, was prophesying of the exodus. How do we know that? None of them knew directly what God was going to do. But if, if we look at Hebrews in the 11th chapter, we read this. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. He didn't know the hour. He didn't know the day. He didn't know the year. He didn't know how God would do it. He simply knew God would do it because God had promised Israel that he would do this. And so God will do it. The exodus will come. And that was good enough for Joseph. I think that his nephews, his sons, uh, his brothers, many of them may have thought that that exodus would come in their lifetime. Well, maybe it'll be five years from now, ten years from now, maybe a little bit longer, but probably pretty soon God's going to call us out of this place. I don't think any of them had any idea that Israel would be in this land for another 400 years. <laughs> I mean, 400 years. If we were to take 1995 and back up 400 years, that would be 1595. And that's before Jamestown was even founded as a colony. <laughs> you know, Walter Raleigh and, and Sir Humphrey Gilbert had attempted to found a colony down on Roanoke Island uh, slightly before that time or about that time. And of course, as you know, that one disappeared. But there wasn't any America even in the sense of an English colony 400 years ago. When I teach U.S. history, a lot of students almost consider the founding of America as ancient history. 
you know, ancient history. Well, in fact, many of them consider World War II ancient history. <laughs> you know. It's hard to imagine that the young people today who are coming into college were not even alive when Vietnam fell. For those of us who lived through quite a few of those things, <laughs> that gets a little bit incredible after a while. You know, they say, oh, I didn't know Jane Fonda was a problem at any time, you know. <laughs> it's just a different world. And, and so what you, you try to think of it, if, if, they, if they could think 400 years in the future, oh my goodness, that seemed like forever. Even though it's just a moment in time, really. But the implication was very clear. They would not be leaving Egypt until God visited them and led them out. Now, the question is, how did this message, how did Joseph's words, how, how were they kept alive for 400 years? And I think we have to recognize it was done by oral tradition. Oral tradition. Israel would become an oppressed nation in the land of Egypt. And as they became uh, oppressed, the more oppressed they became, the more important their oral tradition became. The more important these promises to them became. There is no evidence that they had a record written, that there was a written record, uh, that there was any written scripture at that particular time. I mean, it seems quite clear to us that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. And Moses was yet to live, and therefore this was not a written record. It was oral tradition, as far as the Israelis were concerned themselves. And they were only able to keep their identity through the oral accounts that were passed on from father to son and mother to daughter. And their past heroes and God's promises were kept alive at the campfire at night. You can imagine, I think, there is no television no radio, nothing to interfere with the campfire circle and to sit around the campfire at night and talk about the traditions of the fathers would have been the greatest thing of the whole day. Everybody looked forward to it. And by that method, stories were recounted over and over and over again. So they would just be deeply ingrained in the minds and the hearts of the people. So the question is, would they remember? Would this tradition be carried on so that they would remember to take Joseph? I mean, would they even remember Joseph? Joseph who? How would they remember this man? Well, did they? Did they carry his bones out? Or did they just plain forget? Well, if we turn to, uh, I'll just turn to it in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. We're told... This is after they have conquered the land. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So they didn't forget. They took his bones up and they buried his bones at Shechem. Interestingly, that same Shechem would become the first capital of the northern kingdom of Israel several hundred years later, which would be often referred to as Ephraim, the name of 
Jacob's, of Joseph's second son, who would then become the prominent, more prominent of his two sons. <coughs> Finally, Joseph died. And Joseph was put through the embalming process, as had been Jacob. But I don't think that uh, Joseph was put through the short route. You know, as in Jacob's case, they only gave him a 40-day preparation. And as I mentioned to you at that time, usually 70 days up to 270 days were used for the full-fledged embalming process, whereby, I mean, well, it's kind of gory, but they did the whole deal, a uh, whole route. I think Joseph was subjected to the total process that they would have done for a pharaoh, because after all, he was only a little lower than pharaoh. And in many people's minds, he was probably more esteemed than Pharaoh because of what God had used him for. Therefore, I think he was given the most expensive treatment available in terms of preparing his body. They planned for his body to be forever in Egypt. The Egyptians did anyway. When his body was embalmed and the process was over and he was thoroughly soaked in natron and, and he was wrapped up completely as a mummy, the scripture tells us that he was put in an aron, which is the Hebrew word for a box. But the Hebrew word aron is never used in the Old Testament for just a plain old box. It's always used for something extraordinary. In fact, it mostly applies to the Ark of the Covenant. But certainly here we're talking about an elaborately decorated sarcophagus. Now, if you've seen pictures, if you've not literally seen some of these sarcophagi that pharaohs were buried in, they were pretty elaborate things. Remember when they undid King Tut's uh, tomb? His sarcophagus was, it was, in, was inside of a large box, a box that wouldn't even fit in this room in terms of vertically, which was inside of which was another box, inside of which was yet another box, and then inside that was their sarcophagus. And then there were four sarcophagi before you got to the mummy. So, I mean, the guy's really in there. <laughs> and, of course, in the case of King Tut, one, the, I think it was the second to the last sarcophagus was one half th inch thick solid gold. Well, I'm not saying they buried Joseph in a golden sarcophagus, but certainly this was a very, very elaborate, we would use the word coffin, but that doesn't even begin to come close to what he was placed in. Well, after the great mourning period was over, the first major era of Israel's history comes to an end, or came to an end. It's not mentioned in the scripture, it doesn't say, and they mourn for Joseph for all these days, but you can just believe that if they mourned for Jacob, how much more they mourned for Joseph. And if, you know, if they'd had flags in those days, flags would have been at half-mast all over the land of Egypt. And there was a national lament throughout the country, probably for months, upon the death of Joseph. From Abraham to Joseph. The story that we have read is nearly continuous with only a few short breaks. You know, 10 years here, maybe 30 years there. But now we come to a break in the record that is 300
hundred years long between the death of Joseph and the account of the birth of Moses. Can you imagine if Joseph's brothers had felt exposed when Jacob died, how much more they must have felt exposed now that the umbrella was gone. Joseph was gone. The one who was the prime minister of the land who had been their guarantee for these many years was gone. And I believe that a certain amount of fear and uncertainty began to creep into the hearts and minds of Joseph's family after he was gone. I think at first the vivid memory of Joseph encouraged them. But eventually, there were generations who arose who knew of Joseph only through oral tradition. In fact, when you read in the book of Exodus, it says early on about the eighth verse of the first chapter that there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so you can imagine that by that time, all of the Israelis knew not Joseph either except by oral tradition. And as the days of the glory of Joseph faded into the past, I think the hope for deliverance began to weaken also. And that's the end of the book of the beginnings. When you pick up the story again, you're 300 years later in Exodus. Next week, we are going to look at the land I'm going to bring slides of Israel and Egypt. Uh, I'm going to project them probably on that wall there, so I'm going to ask whoever sets this up to turn the seats and if they can do something to block out some of the windows. But anyway, next week uh, we'll, we'll take a tour. We'll look at many of these places that we've talked about. And yes, sir. Archaeological? No. Um, I heard a comment once where the reason for a pharaoh not knowing Joseph was because Egypt was invaded and basically taken over by a different type of people. Have you ever heard that? Well, the study of Egyptology has come up with the concept that Somewhere around the time of Joseph, Egypt was invaded by a group known as the Hyksos, otherwise known as the Shepherd Kings, who were an Asiatic people who invaded the land and conquered Lower Egypt and established a dynasty of pharaohs for approximately 200 years that ruled Lower Egypt. But the problem with the timing is the question here. Uh, most feel that Joseph was actually there during the time of the Hyksos. And therefore, the pharaoh that knew not Joseph was the first of the true Egyptian pharaohs to be restored to the throne after the Hyksos were gone. And the idea is the Hyksos would have been more amenable to the idea of having Joseph on, in power because they were already oriented towards Asiatic lifestyle and Asiatic ways and shepherding wasn't such a big problem to them as at least as rulers but the whole thing you know like nailing down when Joseph was in Egypt is purely guesswork I mean within the f scope of a 
few hundred years, it's just guesswork. There's no way of nailing down. It's just like there is no absolute record in Egyptian history of the Hebrews, quote, specifically having been there and then specifically leaving. But, it's just, but when you think about this, there's no record, for example, in the Assyrian archives, and the Assyrians kept meticulous archives, there's no record of some of the scriptural events there either. But we know, for example, that the Assyrians only put good things in their archives, good things to their, from their point of view. In other words, they wrote about their victories and the great honors, but they never wrote about defeats and they never wrote about tragedies. And so as you think about this, this would be true of most ancient peoples as well as it has been until we come to our modern age of reconstruction and political correctness. I mean, if you read an American historian today who writes in the late 20th century and compare him to Bancroft, for example, who wrote 100 years ago, Bancroft only wrote about the uh, United States in kind of glorious terms, whereas modern historians write about the United States as if it, it, was, as if it were the worst thing ever happened to the human race. You know? And obviously the reality is somewhere in between. We're, we're not a nation of heroes, but neither are we a nation of creeps. We're kind of like average and ordinary people that have lived throughout <laughs> history. And so the, the, the answer to many of these questions simply comes in wait. <laughs> we don't have all the information yet. And uh, as long as we don't have the information, we don't make any final proclamations uh, relative to what the Scripture has. We as believers have to accept the Scripture by faith. This is what really happened. And we don't trust human records as being the arbitrators or the judges of what Scripture says. Tim? And one of the reasons you don't have record of George Washington in some people's opinions today is because his life's almost incredible. I mean, things that happened to him, a man who spent much of his adult years in warfare and yet never even once wounded, although he was the object of thousands of people trying to kill him, specifically him, and never to be hit once. I mean, how do you explain that? Well, you, you can't under normal circumstances, so it's easier to ignore him, then you don't have to deal with the issue. <laughs> Well, anyway, from Joseph to Washington, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> anyway, we will, we will look at these um, pictures, and it'll be a time when you are you know, free to ask questions if you want to. I'll try to uh, just sweep through the major areas that we have uh, talked about through the book of Genesis, seeing them. Of course, obviously, you have to see them as they are today. Uh, and they won't look exactly the same then. I mean, you look at, for example, Bethlehem and, and Nazareth, and you see, you know, old little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And you look at this bustling city with all these big square buildings, you know. And they, well, it's not such a little town anymore. And you go to Nazareth, where you expected to find a little carpenter shop and a little hut next door, and this thing covers the whole valley, you know, and leaps over into the next ridge. And but. These are the sites, and uh, we'll, we'll look at those next week.